Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alex, who have we got? Oh, I'm so excited. John's back. Hello, John. Hey ladies, how are you doing? Oh, we're good. So John was on episode two with his daughter, Emily, um, doing War Queens, but John's about to talk about another of his books and a totally different part of history today. But how is everyone? How's Emily? Uh, everyone's holding up all right. Uh, Emily's uh, 21st birthday comes up on the 16th of April. And so she will be allowed to have her first legal drink, but not her first legal drink in a bar, unfortunately, so because they're all closed. But she's got um, like a party lined up, hasn't she, online? Yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's going to have a uh, – uh, she's got a few uh, friends who are going to be joining her and I think having a virtual drink with her. So oh, that's that, awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that ought to be nice. Um, but, uh, you know, from the looks of it, it sounds like uh, on the other side of the pond, y'all are running a little bit low on spirits. Uh, out, uh, drink, the spirits you drink, not, of course, the, the spirits from – that come from uh, inner strength. Um, how's that? How's that situation going? Uh, this, this is me drinking all of my spiced rum, isn't it? That's uh, well, uh, Alina. Uh, how's the vodka situation over in Poland? Oh my God! Come on over. We have so much of the stuff. We Poland will never, will never ever run, run out of vodka. We will never. Yeah, exactly. We will never <laughs> run out of vodka. I have two bottles, two new bottles waiting for me. One for tonight. Hopefully, maybe not a whole bowl tonight. We'll see. Excellent, because I, I was a little worried because um, I've noticed a correlation between Alex's concerns about the diminishing store of alcohol and the coarseness of discourse on the podcast, and I was wondering <laughs> if uh, crude language and running out of alcohol were connected. Yeah, basically, uh, um, I'm sobering up. No, I'm all right. I've got plenty of gin. I've got plenty of gin. I just, I'm a complete snob when it comes to my rum, and I will only drink certain rums, and none of them are like supermarket available, um, unless I go and buy a bottle of Kraken, but I'll get over it. I'll get over it. It's there are people with far, far bigger problems than that. Am I going there to have to are. Amazon a bottle over for you? Yes, please. I will do that. I will do that for you right now. This is why I love you. Are, John, are how, people... how have things changed in Georgia since we last spoke to you? Are you locked down now? Uh, we're not formally locked down, but uh, basically everything is closed. You can go out to the grocery store, uh, but you have to wear a mask. If you don't have uh, one of those standard N95 type masks, then you just have to uh, put on whatever you've got. So uh, we're seeing a lot of creativity, a lot of baby Yoda masks, uh, a lot of uh, 
you know, different kind of stuff. But when you go out shopping, um, things are, are pretty good right now. The chicken is back. The beef is back. You can get all that. Really, the only thing we still haven't gotten is toilet paper. And uh, so we're, we're sort of regressing back to Roman times. It's kind of a sponge on a stick era now, except that I have a great Pyrenees at home who sheds a lot, so I don't need a sponge. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you can do it on a budget. Um, so where is, <laughs> where he's, is he's got today? to earn his keep. Yeah, definitely. And all those walks that you make Emily take him on. Um, mm -hmm. We need to, we're not staying in Georgia with you today. We're going to my favorite state because we're going to talk about Texas today, um, which I absolutely love. Um, I love that hashtag TAF, Texas as mm -hmm. F word. Um, mm -hmm. Because basically, I think Texans are just Londoners, um, cynical and slightly sarcastic, but with big hats and guitars, and I love them. Um, and we're going to talk. And well, yeah, and I don't love the guns so much. But um, yeah, you're here to talk um, today about a book that you had out a couple of years ago about the Texas Navy, which as soon as I heard you'd done that, I was like, we've got to get you on to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Alina, start us off. Let's just go. Can we just not hate me, by the way, for being really, really bad at naval history? And forgive me for my horrible, horrible tweets, first of all, before I ask this question. Can I be forgiven? Only if you grovel at the feet of naval greatness from now on. You don't have yeah. to know everything, but you have to stop taking the, the piss out of it, basically. No. <laughs> no. It can't Then you're, then you're not forgiven. So ask John a question and be good. That's fine. I will be good, quiet, and I'll ask this question. So Texas. Texas has a complex history. It's existed under six flags in total. Can you set the scene for us for the Texas Revolution? And how do we get to this point in the 19th century? Certainly. Uh, Texas, uh, as, as you all know, uh, was originally part of Mexico, Spain. It belonged to the American Indians before them. Uh, in 1821, Mexico won its independence from Spain. And it had, we don't think of it as much today, but it had what was essentially a regional empire that ran from uh, central or northern California, uh, Colorado, down through the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, and so it was an enormous amount of territory for the government to try to get a handle on. Uh, its central capital of Mexico City had a, a big problem with, uh, with hostile Comanches, Karankawa, other tribes up in the area that they knew as Coahuila y Tejas. And uh, their solution was immigration. They uh, concluded that they could... Uh, form a barrier to the hostile native tribes by importing Anglos from the United States with uh, promises of land grants, 10-year uh, tax breaks, and 10-year uh, breaks from customs and import duties. So over the, the 10 years from about 1824 to 1834, uh, the, the Mexican government welcomed, at, at 1832 I guess, uh, Mexican government welcomed these uh, Americans in uh, and the, the Norte Americanos, uh, Stephen Austin and others, uh, got very comfortable with their tax breaks, and they liked the relative freedom they had. Uh, up, up, basically, they had no adult supervision, and they sort of grew up as, as frontier territories, a lot like the states of Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, places where they came from. Well, the 10 years ended. And Mexico said, all right, now it's time for you to start uh, paying the same taxes as the rest of us. And as you can imagine, that did not go down very well. The uh, Westerners who, from the United States who came in to populate uh, southeastern Texas 
were independent-minded. They still had uh, grandparents who could remember the American Revolution. They had that spirit and uh, were d decided that, that that was not what they were interested in. Uh, by 1835, a flare-up uh, at sea uh, occurred uh, off the coast of uh, Brazoria, Texas, at the mouth of the Brazos River, a little not that far west of Houston. And a, uh, a Mexican revenue cutter was attacked by a steamboat and a uh, an armed merchant ship from uh, from uh, New Orleans. And uh, that fight basically was the first blood of the Texas Revolution. Shortly afterward, uh, Mexico responded with uh, by sending troops up north uh, into Texas territory, and uh, with that, the revolution broke out. Wow. Okay. So, what did Texas need with a navy? There's actually a really obvious reason why they have to take to the water, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, you know, we think of Texas as that place with uh, deserts and cacti and you know cow skulls, and so to us. Uh, you know, a, a Navy might seem as Texas as avocado or, uh, you know, uh, a pad thai. Mm. But um, if, if you look at the geography, Mexico is in sort of a semicircle. The Gulf of Mexico is. The center of revolutionary activity was in Galveston, which is near Houston. It's a port city. And uh, New Orleans uh, was the center of the Texas uh, supplies. Uh, and the fastest way to get from New Orleans to Galveston was by boat. Conversely, the fastest way to get from Mexico City to Galveston, if you're sending troops or supplies, reinforcements, is also by boat. So uh, control of the Gulf of Mexico was critical to the success or failure of the Texas Revolution. And we see that throughout history uh, in the same way that, uh, say, the ancient uh, Persians, when they invaded Greece, they needed to control the seas. There's, the Britons, of course, understand sea lines of communication. And uh, so while we think of uh, Texas as being full of land battles like the Alamo or San Jacinto, uh, it really was uh, the sea that were, was the lifeline for both sides. <laughs> what kind of warships did the Texas Navy field? I mean, they weren't paddling around in bathtubs and, and tiny little rowing boats, were they? No, they, they were not uh, rowboats, um, but they also weren't the kind of ships that Europeans think of. Um, to give you a, a comparison, the HMS Victory, okay, that's one of Britain's most famous sailing ships, was about 3,500 tons displacement, more or less. The largest Texas warship was about 600 tons. It carried 20 guns. And uh, most of the, sh the ships of the Texas Revolution were schooners, so they had two masts, and they were about uh, 128 tons, 120 tons, something like that. And the reason they had these smaller ships was uh, two, two things. First, uh, the cost, uh, cost of a larger ship. It's going to take more supplies, ammunition, and crewmen. Uh, but also, the, the ports of the Gulf Coast were, for the most part, not extremely deep. New Orleans was a deep water port, and is. Uh, uh, Veracruz was deep water. But uh, along the Texas coast, uh, Matagorda, the mouth of the Rio Grande, um, Galveston, those, those were much shallower. We're talking like at, you know, eight feet perhaps at low tide. So you had to have a shallow draft uh, boat. Uh, these weren't even considered ships. Uh, you had a, a shallow draft schooner that would be able to move in and out 
of those uh, shallow ports. And, and originally their job was to look for uh, people evading customs duties, uh, pirates, uh, you know, revenue evaders. There, there were revenue ships. And so you needed something small in those ports, not like the big European ships of, of Trafalgar and Copenhagen. And so talk to us about what they did in the Texas Revolution. Talk to us about the battles they fought and, and what were their significance? Sure. The, uh, the Texas Navy during the Revolution, and Texas had two navies. Uh, the first one was of the Revolution from about 1835 to 1837. And uh, there were four warships, uh, a, little, uh, a little schooner called the Liberty, uh, which just had six guns, a slightly larger pair of schooners, the Invincible and the Brutus, and they had about, it, it, sources differ, but about seven or eight guns, the largest of which fired an 18-pound ball, which was a, a pretty big cannonball for that conflict. And then the flagship, the Independence, which was a U.S. revenue cutter. Uh, they, they, the warships fanned out through the Gulf of Mexico. They captured some supplies that were going to be sent to uh, Gen Mexican General Santa Ana's army. And uh, they, they put a, a lot of... Uh, uh, of, uh, they put a crimp on shipping in the Gulf of Mexico. So Mexico wasn't, uh, wasn't able to get its, uh, its supplies and its, its commerce even between uh, Cuba, Yucatan from, the, from Europe uh, and so forth into central Mexico. But the biggest battle they fought or the most significant one was on the 3rd of April, 1836. The uh, Invincible uh, then having about uh, seven nine-pounder guns, uh, strolled up to the mouth of the Rio Grande River near uh, modern-day Brownsville under uh, its captain, a uh, uh, sort of a woodsman uh, frontier type named Jeremiah Brown. Uh, he sailed up to the mouth of the river and saw the Mexican warship General Bravo. Uh, the Bravo had lost her rudder, and she was in the process of getting that repaired and uh, Jeremiah Brown uh, pulled up under flying United States colors rather than Texas colors, and that was considered a, a reasonable ruse de guerre at the time. Uh, and he was able to uh, get within hailing distance of the Mexican warship. He sent over a lieutenant, uh, arguably, depending on who you believe, dressed in a U.S. Navy uniform, but uh, their cover got blown. Somebody recognized someone on the uh, Invincible, and a firefight broke out. Uh, General Bravo uh, lost her, uh, took some hits. Uh, her lost rudder uh, basically didn't allow her to maneuver, so she had to drift back up into the Rio mouth and she got grounded. After that, uh, the Invincible stood off uh, shore and uh, found a ship uh, coming, at, uh, coming uh, from the horizon. It turned out to be the supply brig, the Pocket, and, uh, and so Jeremiah Brown and his Invincible promptly captured the pocket. Now, that was just a little skirmish in the scheme of things, but it had a big repercussion. At the time of that battle, Santa Ana's main army was driving northeast into, toward the Galveston area and was about to fight the Battle of San Jacinto, which turned out to be the, the Waterloo of the uh, Texas Revolution. It was the decisive battle. He lost that decisive battle uh, by taking his advance guard out into Sam Houston's Texas Army, and they got ambushed, essentially. 
they let their guard down. The advance column was defeated. Santa Ana was captured. But what people don't think about as much is that after that disaster, the Mexican army under its second in command still had a larger army. Uh, they had uh, about 2.8 uh, to 1 advantage and an advantage in cavalry and in cannons and so forth. But they were running out of ammunition and food. And the supplies that were coming over from the brig pocket and a couple of other ships that were assembled at the mouth of the, the Rio Grande River were designed to enable the Mexican army to continue fighting. Without those supplies, the second in command uh, made the decision to withdraw back to San, uh, San Antonio and then from there back into Mexican territory. Uh, but, but if he'd had those supplies, if the Texas Navy had not interdicted those, uh, those ships, then he might have been able to continue the fight, and he certainly would have had the numbers to have won a second time. He was not going to be caught off guard by Sam Houston like Santa Ana was. And so conceivably, the Texas Navy changed the outcome of the war by preventing a second battle of San Jacinto from being fought, a battle that probably would have ended in Texas defeat. So how did, <clears throat> sorry, how did the Texas Revolution end? The Texas Revolution ended after the Battle of San Jacinto. Uh, the captured Generalissimo Santa Ana, who was the head of the Mexican government, signed a treaty uh, giving Texas its independence down to either the Nueces or the Rio Grande River. And that fact would become, that, that geographical ambiguity would become a, a sore spot down the road. Um, of course, being captured, uh, he, Santa Ana was without power to bind the Mexican government. Uh, so the two countries stayed in kind of a state of cold war and uh, sometimes slightly hot war until 1843. What actually becomes of the Navy? The uh, first Texas Navy, the Navy of the Revolution, those four ships uh, were no longer extant by 1837. Uh, the first one to go was the Liberty. Uh, she was captured, not by uh, pirates, not by Mexican uh, antagonists or, or the, the Navy. She was captured by her creditors in New Orleans. Uh, the Texas Revolution was underfunded. They basically borrowed enough money to buy the ship, and they got volunteers to man it at first. But a ship, like a lot of other pieces of expensive equipment, uh, requires a lot of maintenance. It will rot if you're not careful. It had to be refitted in New Orleans. And just like if you took your car in to a repair shop, you got it fixed and then you couldn't afford to pay the bill, you might not get your car back. And that's what happened to the Liberty. The flagship independence was captured off the coast of Brazoria, Texas uh, in early 1837. And that outraged the citizens of Texas, some of whom could actually see the battle from the uh, mouth of the Brazos River. Uh, one of those was the Texas Secretary of the Navy who violated orders from the Texas president, Sam Houston, and took off on a uh, two and a half month cruise down the Mexican coast. Uh, he basically uh, ran, ran along the coast, uh, captured ships, uh, a few small ships, and uh, his Navy even claimed the island of Cozumel for Texas. They, uh, they, they ran up a Texas flag on the beach. 
They had some of the bewildered locals swear independent or, or swear, uh, you know, allegiance to Texas. And uh, then they left the, the next day and life went back to where it always was. Uh, Sam Houston was furious about this and he sacked all his uh, naval leadership when they got back. Well, when the two ships got back, uh, they were chased down by a pair of Mexican warships. Uh, one of them ran aground in uh, trying to get into Galveston Bay, the Invincible, and it broke up in a storm that night. And then the final ship, the Brutus, uh, made it into Galveston, but it was destroyed in a uh, fantastically uh, bad hurricane in 1837 named after a British sloop that first spotted it. It was called Racer's Storm. So uh, by the end of 1837, Texas kind of lay naked on its coast uh, without any protection. Um, just for British people, uh, tell everyone who Sam Houston is and a bit about him. Certainly. Sam Houston was a protege of U.S. President Andrew Jackson. He uh, had fought with Jackson in, uh, in some wars against American Indians in the East, and he came out to Texas, uh, some people say at Jackson's behest, with the idea of uh, winning Texas's independence and annexing it to the United States. Uh, it was an interesting dynamic. Uh, uh, the, uh, by that point, Andrew Jackson knew that everybody thought that that was what he was trying to do. It was a, a, a base power grab or land grab using uh, Sam Houston as his, uh, as his tool to win Texas. And because of that, Andrew Jackson, not wanting to look like he was doing something underhanded, uh, really didn't get too involved. He, he, his heart was with the Texians, as they were called, but he, uh, he didn't uh, try to quickly jump on and, and annex Texas. So Sam Houston ended up being president two times of a country that uh, nobody really knew what to do with. Uh, Houston really wanted it to be annexed to the United States, uh, while others in Texas, including Houston's successor, uh, President Mirabeau Lamar of Georgia, wanted to keep Texas independent and as a regional power. Uh, the, the big superpowers uh, of the time, uh, France, Britain, the United States regionally, and Mexico, of course, being on the border, all had different interests in uh, Texas. Mexico wanted it back. The United States kind of wanted it, but uh, some of them did not because uh, slavery was going to be, was a hot question, and then and Texas obviously was going to be a slave state if it were admitted to the United States. Uh, Britain wanted to keep Texas independent so that uh, it would have a continued supply of cotton and textiles that it could, uh, or cotton that it could uh, uh, ship from Texas without having to climb over U.S. Uh, tariffs. And, uh, and it uh, had, and France uh, had a relationship with Mexico that soured in the late 1830s uh, because of some claims of a pastry baker who reported to uh, the French government that his uh, pastry shop had been ransacked by Mexican soldiers. That turned into a one of those odd little sort of Gilbert and Sullivan type comic opera wars known as the Pastry War in which uh, the French uh, government sent a fleet over to blockade Mexico and uh, captured some of its ships. Uh, and that uh, was really the one of the few reasons that Texas managed to survive this time of not having a navy. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, but then, yeah, I was going to say, there's only one country I can think of that would go to war over pastry, and it would be the French. Um, but why do Texas need a second Navy? How does this come about? And what kind of ships do they have now? Well, by 1839... Uh, there was a different uh, vibe in Texas. Uh, President Lamar was looking at the idea of a country that could could remain a stable, independent nation. Uh, he was thinking potentially even at moving, expanding Texas westward to become a power that could regional power that could make it to the uh, Pacific Ocean. So you had these two different dreams of of what Texas ought to be. Sam Houston's vision of making it part of the United States. Uh, Mirabeau Lamar's vision of making it an independent nation. And under uh, President Lamar, the Texas uh, legislature funded a new Navy. Uh, this, this one ended up uh, with seven ships. And uh, it, went, it plunged into a great deal of debt to buy those ships without much thought as to how you man them, how you pay for them, uh, what you're going to do with them, and, and what's their strategic use. Uh, the idea, I think, was we need to protect the Texas coastline from depredations by Mexico. We need to ensure that uh, we will not be invaded again. But the idea of how to pay for that in a very, very poor uh, frontier country uh, had, had completely escaped them. But uh, the Texas government ended up uh, purchasing uh, three new schooners. Uh, these were built in Baltimore. Uh, you can see replicas of them, uh, one or two of them sailing the, uh, uh, the North American coast today. Uh, they bought a couple of slightly larger brigs. They bought a steamer, which was their first one, and that was considered radical technology at the time. And they bought a 600-ton uh, uh, flagship, a sloop of war, which by Britain standards would be considered small, 20 guns or so. But uh, it was the biggest thing Texas ever fielded, and it was their only bona fide ship. So they, with, with that acquisition of a new Texas Navy in 1839, uh, they considered themselves capable of defending themselves. Uh, they equipped the uh, fleet with uh, former U.S. officers. These were all small-time small midshipmen, uh, lieutenants. And uh, nobody, nobody very important in the U.S. Navy, but in the U.S. Navy, promotions were slow. So this was a great idea to get in on the ground floor of an up-and-coming Navy. And they equipped themselves with, uh, you know, with uh, a number of uh, cutting-edge small arms. Uh, 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 Alex, you had mentioned uh, 
uh, and, and Alina, actually, you brought up uh, Texas guns, and this was one of those uh, times when they really got into them. They purchased a load of Colt revolving pistols from uh, a nearly bankrupt Sam Colt and uh, saved him from bankruptcy and uh, outfitted themselves to project uh, Texas power in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, wow. That's actually really interesting. I want to know a bit more about what their life was like in the Texas Navy. Did they drink, flog, hang, for example? Um, I'm seeing this kind of in the way that I would look at the Royal Navy. Oh, right, right. Uh, rum, sodomy, and the lash, uh, which was, by the way, not just a very fine Pogues album, but also <laughs> a quote attributed to, uh, I believe it was Churchill. And, and honestly, I, it didn't originate with him, as I recall. Um, the uh, Navy of the, uh, Texas, uh, po- uh, the Texas Republic was based on the regulations of the United States Navy with a little bit of British thrown in. There were some British officers, uh, I say officers, they were midshipmen, uh, who became officers in the Texas Navy as well, and they brought their customs with them. Uh, if you, there, there were some, uh, some captains who, or ship captains, who would uh, have their crewmen flogged or, uh, you know, beaten over, uh, you know, over the barrel of a, you know, hauled over the barrel of a cannon and beaten with ropes. Um, they were, uh, th- there was one incident of uh, four mutineers uh, involved with a murder who were hanged in uh, 1843. But in general, the, uh, the, the, the ships were, the, the biggest, the ships were populated by men who were, generally cooperative. The ship's captains were not unusually tyrannical. The real oppression was uh, just lack of, of adequate food uh, and adequate whiskey. Um, you know, they had, uh, they, they had grog rations, just like uh, British sailors did, but those were always in short supply. And, uh, you know, they just didn't have a whole lot of money to purchase uh, food for most of their existence. In fact, the lack of, of money, the sinews of war, as I think uh, Cicero called them, was uh, really their their biggest uh, their, their their biggest oppressor. And um, what did this second Texas Navy do, or this second phase of the Texas Navy? What's their record of service like? Sum up what they do for us. They defended the Texas coast from approximately 1840 to 1843, but the most important thing they did for Texas was prevent a second invasion by Mexico. By 1843, uh, the Mexican government had had, had made a small raid in Southern Texas uh, the year before. And there was a lot from the the Mexican government about uh, launching another invasion. We're going to retake uh, the province that's been taken from us. Uh, They just wouldn't give it up. In fact, uh, I believe it was... uh, Louis Napoleon, who had told the, Spa- the Mexican ambassador uh, that we have a word for this in French that's easy to translate into Spanish. It's called infatuation. And your infatuation with Texas makes you blind to what everybody else can see, that Texas is lost forever. Well, Mexico wouldn't let go, but they couldn't launch an invasion until they'd taken care of another uh, ongoing revolt in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, that was far away from Mexico City. They were forced to commit troops and ships to uh, put down the Yucatan Revolt. And so President Lamar and the Commodore of the Texas, uh, uh, the Texas fleet, Edwin Ward Moore, 
former U.S. Uh, Navy lieutenant, uh, concluded that the best way to prevent Mexico from invading Texas was to keep stirring the pot in Yucatan, keep that revolution alive. It was a very states' rights type revolution against a central government. And the feeling was, if we can just keep Mexico tied down in Yucatan, then we'll be able to uh, preserve Texas's safety. So in an, in an extraordinary deal, uh, President Lamar rented out the Texas fleet for 25000 in silver, uh, dollars worth of silver uh, per month. And, I'm sorry, it was 8000 per month um, in silver. And uh, the, the idea was, uh, we'll let you basically rent out our fleet. We can't afford to keep it up. Um, all you got to do is pay us and we will defend your coastline. The uh, climax of the Texas Navy's uh, career came in early 1843. Uh, at this point, President Sam Houston was, uh, pre was, was president again of Texas. He hated the Navy. He understood the Army, but didn't really know what to do with the Navy and just viewed it as a drain on Texas's finances um, and uh, something that would provoke Mexico. So he forbade the Texas Navy from going anywhere, but through a, a very small loophole and some creative uh, uh, legalisms, the Texas fleet considered that it had the authority to go out to Yucatan and uh, fight the Mexican uh, fleet. It fought in May of 1843, off the, uh, the, it's called the Battle of Campeche, and uh, they fought, uh, they, they had two, uh, Texas warships, both sailing ships, that fought two Mexican steamers, and uh, one of them at the, the time was built in Liverpool. Uh, it was offered to the Royal Navy, but the Royal Navy, being conservative, did not like the idea of coal-fired, uh, you know, steamers and fires uh, near hundreds and hundreds of pounds of gunpowder. So they decided to take a pass on that. Mexico, therefore, had the most advanced fleet and technologically advanced fleet in the world at that time. Um, and so the, uh, the, its flagship, the Guadalupe, the one made in, originally in Liverpool, went, uh, went out with 68-pounder guns, shell-firing guns made by a French company. They ha it had uh, steel plates on its sides and was kind of the dreadnought of its day. Uh, the Texas fleet, uh, combined with a very small Yucatan fleet, managed to fight the, uh, the Mexican fleet to a draw. Ultimately, the Mexican fleet had to withdraw from uh, Campeche. It could not maintain uh, its blockade or support the soldiers. And uh, the Yucatecos were able to, uh, to negotiate peace with the, uh, with the Mexican central government. Uh, but by the time all of that happened, the, uh, the, the United States was looking closely at the idea of protecting Texas and potentially annexing it. And uh, there was a movement to annexation into the United States that was consummated two years later in 1845. So the bottom line is that the Texas Navy was able to keep Mexico occupied until it was able to annex itself to the United States. So just is the, how does Sam Houston come about charging them with piracy, his own Navy? Well, Houston, as I said, was not somebody who really understood 
what to do with the fleet. He thought it was a, he thought he had the prerogative of, of crafting foreign policy, not his ship captains. And he was bullshit mad when he found out that they left for the uh, Yucatan coast. When the, when, when they, uh, before in fact the fleet got back, uh, Sam Houston issued a proclamation declaring his fleet to be pirates, um, he, his own fleet. And he, uh, he called upon all nations of Christendom to apprehend the pirates and bring them back to Texas for, uh, for justice. Uh, hearing about this, this uh, proclamation, uh, Commodore Moore, the leader of the Texas fleet, promptly sailed back for Galveston, uh, where the Texas Navy was extremely popular because Galveston would have been on the front lines of any invasion. And he went to the local sheriff and he offered himself up for arrest. And the sheriff, being no idiot, said, well, I'm sorry, I don't have <laughs> jurisdiction for that. Uh, so so uh, basically, there, there was this war of words in the press between Sam Houston and uh, Commodore Moore. Uh, Houston brought uh, Commodore Moore up on uh, charges of uh, piracy, treason, uh, a number of disobeying orders, and uh, had him tried by court-martial. Now, of course, some of the charges, like treason, were dropped because it was patently obvious the Texas fleet was fighting for Texas, not against it. Uh, ultimately, there were a couple of minor charges that uh, survived dismissal, uh, and, uh, but it just ended in a, a sorry episode between Sam Houston and his Navy commander, uh, uh, bad-mouthing each other in the press if they, you know, whenever they came uh, close to each other at uh, social gatherings, they uh, more would uh, would make the kind of noises you make when you want to challenge somebody to a duel. Houston, who had many scars over his backs from many fights and, and battles, wasn't going to play that game. Uh, he more or less ignored more, but uh, it was it, it ended up being fairly discreditable to both sides. Houston ordered the Texas Navy to be sold at at auction, um, and the citizens of Galveston. Uh, on the day of the auction, gathered around the pier where it was to uh, uh, where it was to take place, and basically threatened to hang anybody who would uh, who would have the temerity to bid on the ships. Uh, in the end, there were no bidders. Those people also not funny being fools. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny that. <laughs> and uh, so somebody uh, ended up uh, a citizen of Galveston uh, offered one dollar to uh, buy the ships and return them to the uh, Republic of Texas. Uh, so even the uh, sale of the Texas Navy did not go off as planned, and the ships ended up sort of staying in uh, Texas, kind of taking on a little water, beginning to rot until uh, they were annexed into the United States Navy in early 1846. John, what is this about a mutiny and a murder in New Orleans? Yeah, the like I said, the um, the the the. Rank and file of the ships, the the seamen, the uh, the the marines, uh, were all chronically short on food and short on booze. And uh, they pulled in for supplies one night in February 1842, uh, in the in one of the schooners, the San Antonio was its name, and uh, they anchored off uh, on the far side of New Orleans, away from the French Quarter. Uh, the idea was we just don't want guys jumping off the side, swimming up to the French Quarter, and doing what one does in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Uh, but these men could see the lights of, of New Orleans. Uh, they knew that there were, were was booze, women, you name it, uh, 
out there and they wanted a little bit of shore leave. Uh, the the uh, acting uh, captain, a uh, lieutenant, uh, refused and uh, the men promptly got uh, broke into the doctor's storeroom, got a little bit drunk, and, uh, and some of these men who got drunk were also the Marines. As you probably know, uh, in the Navy, one of the jobs of the Marines at that time was to protect the officers from the men who they abuse and oppress. And uh, so the, some of the Marines uh, showed back up on the deck. The officer of the deck uh, ordered them to uh, seize the, the drunkards, and they promptly uh, pulled out guns and shot the, uh, the acting, uh, acting lieutenant. Ironically, the acting lieutenant who was shot, and he was killed, um, was the son of a proprietor, a hotel proprietor in Washington, who had helped connect that deal with Sam Colt for revolvers for the Texas Navy. So in a, a sad uh, historical irony, uh, the man's son was killed by the one of the revolvers that he helped Texas acquire. Um, the, uh, the mutineers were, uh, they, they jumped into a boat, they sailed over to New Orleans, they uh, promptly uh, split up, and most of them were caught uh, within the next month. They were put into the New Orleans jail, and they basically sat there until early 1843 when President Houston uh, issued an order or, or issued a request to the governor of New or of Louisiana asking for the return of the mutineers. Uh, Commodore Moore picked them up, uh, took them onto his ship, tried them, and of the, I think, eight mutineers, uh, four of them were found guilty of murder or, uh, or accessory to murder, and they uh, strung them up from, their, uh, from the foremast. Uh, yeah, can't say it wasn't warranted um, in the discipline mm -hmm. of the time. Uh, let's mm -hmm. talk legacy. Um, I've been dying to get to this one because you've mentioned this before um, off air and I want to know. Um, because the Texas Navy has a significant impact on westward expansion in what would become the United States. So how did the Texas Navy affect the way America grew? At the end of the Texas Revolution, uh, the Texas Navy had, uh, had protected... Uh, was protecting its coast. It was able to preserve Texas independence long enough for Texas to become annexed into the United States. That annexation heightened tensions with Mexico. Uh, what was also a problem was the question of the border between uh, uh, Mexico and the United States. Uh, Americans were of that time were notorious for having these vague treaties. You might have a treaty that said the border is at a river but it wouldn't tell you which branch of a river uh, that was the case with the border of Texas and Louisiana. In this case, the uh, question was, was the border the Nueces River or the what we now call the Rio Grande River? Uh, at the time, it was Rio Bravo del Norte. Uh, Mexico and the United States squared off. Uh, Mexico considered annexation of Texas just a, a part of a power grab. And uh, the United States was looking covetously at uh, Mexico's basically ungoverned Western provinces. And so uh, in 1846, a, uh, some incidents along the border led to war between the United States and Mexico. Uh, that war ended in a U.S. victory. And as a result, the uh, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo gave the United States not just uh, confirmed uh, title to Texas, 
but also uh, the Mexican provinces to the west, uh, including Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, and California. So because the Texas Navy was able to preserve Texas independence long enough for those political forces to come to bear, uh, the, the, the Navy was essentially a, a critical piece in the chain of events that led to the United States expansion all the way to the Pacific coast of California. I love it. John, thank you so much for coming back. Give our love to Emily and wish her a happy birthday from us. I will do that. And thanks for having me. Most definitely. We will buy her a drink for real next time one of us makes it out to the US, which I hope will be very soon. If when we get let out of all this madness, um, a Texas road trip is worthy of your time. It is an amazing state. The views down there on the Rio Grande are incredible. Um, all the way out to El Paso, uh, it is awesome. And you can get the best pecan pie of your life in a little cafe bar in Terlingua if you're ever down near Big Bend National Park. That's Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I spent uh, 10 years uh, growing up, or 10 years, I spent 10 years in my professional practice growing up in uh, Texas. And uh, that was, Houston is where Emily and her sister were born. So we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of ties there. It's a, a cherished uh, part of our, our background. And uh, it's just a very interesting place because it's one of the few states that we have over here that used to be its own country. We'll all go. We'll, we'll all go down there. Uh, we we need to go during one of the big rodeo shows, and we'll just have a blast. We'll do Absolutely, some drink, uh, eat some barbecue, and uh, just have a good time. It's mean, awesome. That John, thanks so much. Thank you. Join our Sunday. We have CIA history, World War Two, and the NYPD women, the first women, the fight to control illegal abortion. Uh, that is really interesting, and still has some resonance today as well, which I found utterly baffling. So join us for all of that. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, Brad. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code program.